0: I'm going first today, which I hate. But we love. I think going last is worse, actually. Do you? Yeah, because everyone's a bit like, by the time we get to the last one.
1: Speak for yourself. (laughs) Well, I'm not. I went last last
0: week, thank you. (laughs) Very much. No, and I thought it was brilliant. What did I talk about? (sighs) Drinking. Yeah. Mm. It wasn't last week in my defence.
2: Yeah, oh, for was. heaven's sake, from it the wasn't. point of view of he the pres <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> A is for anything B the baby blue. C is classy, clams and clogs. D for doggy doo, that's too. E is easy, F for flange. G for gallon, H for ham. I for idiot. You're an idiot. I'm an idiot. I'm K is kooky, L for lads, lager ladies. love lass, M for mummy. And for, for knock knock, who's there? Heepy, <laughs> Here you go. for ugly. V for Venus. W for W. X is hard to comprehend. Why can't I just reach the end? M Z for zebra, zinc and zanies. zip, zucchini, Zoom and zoo, and zippelin too. The alphabet is really cool. Well, I'm going to talk. what today is E. E. And I'm going to talk about eels, which are truly fascinating mm. creatures. <laughs> Why are you looking at me like that? I don't know. Because <laughs> you made that noise. Yeah, so eels, hey. Um, there's more than 800 species of them. Wow. <laughs> Oh! Oh. So I'm going to just whip out a few facts to start us off, get, you know, whet the appetite. The longest eel ever recorded was a slender giant moray eel. I don't know if that's just how whoever found it logged it and it was just a moray eel.
0: Or if it was particularly (laughs) slender. Well,
2: yes. (laughs) And giant. Well, it was big. Captured in 1927, measuring 12.9 feet long, which is about the height of an elephant. Oh, my Whoa. God. How rank is that? That is so rank. That's Discusting. a big meal. For who? For someone who eats... No, eel. <laughs> 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 this, w- whoever's eating eel, I, I mean, suppose. that would go around a large family. It w- I don't know if you'd eat more ale, well, a more eel though. Well, I'd ale. know if you told me more about them, for heaven's sake. I actually haven't got much about more eels okay. today. I'm really focusing on the European eel, mainly. Okay. Um, so, sorry about that. Also... Their blood is toxic to humans and other mammals. But when you cook them, it does something to it, which means it's okay. But I think if you went and just like jabbed at an eel raw with your jaws. um,
1: Can I just ask then, I don't know if you came across this in your research. Have you ever seen on TV or heard of the phenomenon? And I forget which culture this is from now, but someone like Jonathan Ross did it on a TV show once. It's a tradition where you chop off the head of an eel, grab its heart while it's still beating, and swallow it.
0: That is. That's disgusting. Absolutely. It is absolutely and cruel. Horrific. Disgusting. But Jonathan Ross did that live on TV. Also,
2: I hope that wasn't a European eel because they are critically endangered. So that's terrible news. Bad, bad Jonathan Ross. <laughs> <laughs> right. So anyway, <laughs> um, as I was saying, they are critically endangered European eels. And there's like a black market of fishing for elvers, which are baby eels, Aww. which we've eaten jelly. <gasps> I haven't ever. Yeah, you bloody have. I've watched you shoveling them into a <laughs> gob. <goblet>. When? When? <laughs> yeah. Somewhere in Spain on tour. I have never eaten an elver. And an elver. They kept putting them all over everything. They just look like we thought it was like a shredded cabbage or something, but it was baby eels. No,
0: because I was veggie at this point.
1: Someone respects her, Elvis.
0: Oh! (laughs) (laughs) But... Elvis Presley. No. (laughs) Don't start. (laughs) Um,
2: A pint glass worth, which is a kilo of Elvis, can fetch up to £4,000 on the black market. Oh, my God. Yeah, so they've actually been um, quite involved with organised crime units.
0: Because they're endangered, that's why everyone wants
2: them. And I guess they're quite hard to fish. Okay. Well, as in not actually to catch, but there's not, yeah, there's not yeah. a lot of them. So, why were they chucking them all over everything you ate in Spain? Because there's a legal amount of elva fishing that is allowed and it's particularly used in Spain. So, we ship them, it's the River Seven does a lot of it, and we ship them out to well, Europe is legal, but anywhere beyond that isn't. And there's a huge demand from like China. So, they pay the big bucks. To get these over, but actually in Europe, it's only about £150 for a pint glass worth of Elvers. But yeah, random, because we don't, we don't really eat them. No. Here. We used to, they used to just like deep fry them, like little crispies.
0: There is absolutely nothing, nothing that appeals to me about eating an eel. Have you had it before? Well, I don't think so, but you're trying to tell me I have. <laughs> <laughs> you might have, I don't know, with
2: that situation. We I did think they were a vegetable for quite some time.
0: Maybe they vegetable
2: oh she's on it today love it I don't like the idea of like a jellied eel I think putting jelly on something that is kind of slimy and disgusting anyway yeah. but actually I've had like smoked eel before and that's it's just it's just oh, like fish yeah. and it's, it's not slimy or anything Is it any tougher than fish? A little bit I don't think
1: I've I tried imagine it's what
2: like a crocodile tastes like
1: Oh I think of crocodiles being chickeny
2: Oh yeah Yeah I've mm. heard that but it is, it is a bit more springy, in it's Like monkfish. Yeah, maybe a little less springy than monkfish. <laughs> okay, okay, we'll
1: get there. Let's get the spring ommister
2: out. <laughs> right, so I'm going to um, go through the life cycle of a European eel, which is really quite formidable. Most of what I've got is from Alice Fowler's book, Hidden Nature, which is a lovely book, which I can highly recommend, about her. Going around the canals of Birmingham on a little inflatable canoe and oh, discovering yeah. her sexuality.
0: Oh yes, yes,
2: yes! It's really great, and she's a famous gardener lady who's very into her nature. So you learn a lot about like herons and stuff. They start their life in the Sargasso Sea. Do you know where that is? No. So it's just if you have the Atlantic Ocean, it's kind of nearer the east coast of North America rather than Africa or Europe. But it's big. It's a big swathe of, of the ocean called the Sargasso Sea. And they are little flat, transparent larvae known as leptocephali. So they drift through the surface waters of the sea, surviving on marine snow, which is um, wow. sort of detritus from the sea and plankton and bits of broken down old... Fish, I guess, and like ash and certain stuff, just kind of random crap. And poo, it was poo was lifted in there too. It's got to go somewhere. It does. And they basically look like little transparent willow leaves, and they can only swim between one and five miles per hour. So they use the Gulf Stream to get across the ocean because it's nice and warm and it speeds them up a bit, all the way to Europe. And that takes up to a year or sometimes longer. So that's how they start out their lives. They just come all the way over from there to Europe.
0: And every single eel that you ever encounter will have been born in the Sargasso I see.
2: Yes, every single European eel. European eel, not, sorry. Yeah, not, course, the other, not, the other, not a moray, for instance, or a conga. Um, <laughs> <Thank you. ba-da-ba-da-ba-ba. laughs> um, so once they're in Europe, they metamorphose into glass eels. So they're still see-through, but now they have little red gills and a visible heart. And that's this kind of transition between... Salt water to freshwater happening and that change is all happening at the same time which is very clever mm. and then these glass eels so they start to kind of begin the migration further inland and upstream and they climb out of the water if they like hit a obstacle and they flatten themselves to look like a blade of grass to hide from herons which is so cool. That's really cool. And what's actually happening is that because we've got a lot of kind of like man-made, engineered rivers that have smooth sides, and then we have a lot of like dams and weirs and things like that, they can't get out to kind of shimmy around the side and jump back in, and they can't get up. So because they're endangered and their numbers dropped massively in the last few years, the Thames, and I think across the whole of the country, they've got these eel passes, which are kind of like a ramp with like bristly bristle brush, kind of turfy material on them. And the eels climb up the ramps and then ju- just jump in and carry oh on their God. journey. Because they have a oh, wow. the little stairway, which is quite nice. That's lovely. Proud to be British right now. Yeah, yeah. I read that on the government website as Did well. Did you? Yeah.
0: Wow. Not the idea of them having to show a little card, an eel pass.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let me through. I'm eelderly. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> That's why like you were writing all these down before we got in. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I wrote down. Twenty puns. I can't wait for the other sixteen. So next, they start to darken, um, and pigmentation takes place, and they're called, This is when they're elvers. Elvers, and they have an incredible sense of smell at this point, which helps to guide them to their kind of like chosen water that they're going to go to because they can survive in like lots of different kinds, and obviously going all over the country. And their smell—it's incredibly strong, and it picks up. There's like a link to basically DNA from their genetic counterparts that have already made the journey that enables them to go to like the same places which is like insane so meet their relatives well their relatives won't be there because you'll hear what happens in the cycle of this Um, Jelly eats them on top of all her food yeah exactly (laughs) sprinkled on Jelly's (laughs) brekkie thinking that seaweed yeah (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah they head up via their little snozzers to wherever they're going as this is happening their skin starts to get thicker and at the end of the migration, there will be a yellow, teenaged eel. And at this point, they
0: choose their sex. Oh my god! Yeah, get me into the Sargasso Sea right now. <laughs> I want to choose my sex. <laughs> can they? Can they, but once you've chosen, you that's it. There's no going back. Yeah, <sighs> mama. <laughs> that's so cool.
2: But no. So basically, I mean in the book it says they choose i don't know if that's maybe a slightly dramatic language it's, it's determined by environmental factors but there's a kind of element of evolutionary choice i suppose um so what happens is if you're in an estuary or nearer the sea or in a high population density area of eels you'll be male but if you've pioneered further upstream you'll be female of course obviously always hard work for us fucking hell whatever um so basically if conditions are hostile you're going to want to be near the sea and stay in the estuaries and stuff like that because you're going to want to be male because you have a higher survival rate um but if the conditions are good then you're going to want to push upstream become a lady because actually the prize of like being able to eventually go back to the Sargasso sea and release your eggs release the eggs I know I literally knew you were about to see that <laughs> lower the <club>. globe <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's, it's definitely worth it <laughs> um, so yeah and you also it means you get your obviously your genetic material all passed down like faux show Jenny's up smiling at me <laughs> when you release those eggs um, so the eels you know decided it's going to be a lady eel and now they just chill at like the bottom of whatever water body they're in they love lakes canals rivers anything and if it's muddy that's great they like that kind of silty crap at the bottom and this is where they mature into silver eels so at some point when they reach between 8 and 18 years old <gasps> they start to make their way back across the Atlantic to wow. spawn and die in the Sargasso Sea and this is the really interesting bit that's kind of a bit of a mystery so a mature freshwater eel ready to breed has a, a dark grey, brown, black, which is what they said, a dark grey, brown, black body. Um, and its yellowish sides turn silver and its belly goes white and their eyes grow much bigger and they start to store fat and their pectoral fins lengthen for open ocean swimming. And why it's, people are kind of baffled by it is that obviously they've come over on the, the warm currents of the Gulf Stream and now they're going to have to make a 5,000 kilometre journey back without that um, which is a hell of a long way for an e- like an eel mm. I mean it's not exactly like it's not like a whale or something it's just this tiny little thing they also don't eat for the entire journey which we know because their anus closes
1: seals over
2: yeah, and their anal tract atrophies. so there's no pooping going on, so you can't be eating if you're not gonna be pooping. Oh my God, these guys are insane. They are insane. They're insane. Um, and they think that this butt closing is to prevent infection or like picking up parasites, but also because they're kind of in a state of hibernation and That's they weird so it's so strange. And they sw- so they're swimming in sort of shallow water and then to heat themselves up at night, so there, there aren't any predators there and then they drop down to about a thousand meters below where they get pulled by the ocean gyre and are kind of probably just like basically sleeping and not pooing, I guess. But but swimming? But swimming and kind of being like tugged along slightly. God, it sounds lovely. (laughs) Tug that eel. (laughs) Tug it in. Um, So, and then, yeah, and then they get all the way back to the Sargasso Sea and um, lay some eggs and die. It's quite tragic. It's tragic, but it's also, what a life, because it it would be tragic if it was like, you know, something like a mayfly or something that exists for a day, lays its eggs and dies. Whereas they, apparently they can live up to 100 years, but generally it's, I think their lifespan's about 40, 40 years. So if they live for
1: 100 years, does that mean they spent, whatever, 99 years in the UK or somewhere else in Europe, and then they make that one trip and
2: have and lay eggs or could they do repeat journeys no 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 it's always just one trip but they wouldn't be nice. there'd be probably like 97 years in the UK I don't know how long it takes them to get back also the other thing is that like no one has actually found them in the Sargasso Sea so it's not even necessarily confirmed oh but they're gosh. like they're just pretty damn sure that's where they are but they act, they're a complete mystery <laughs> wow so it's, it does it's sound wild. made up it does isn't it it does But then they've studied... Sealed anuses. The Sargasso Sea. (laughs) Tugged along. A hundred (laughs) years. Well, I think a hundred years is pushing it a bit. It all smells a bit fishy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, but also, they're very, very ancient creatures. So they are going to be quite weird. And they go all the way back to 70 million years ago. And they haven't changed much since then. And if you think about it, to put that in perspective for you... The Atlantic Ocean appeared sixty five million years ago. So when they were first making this little trip across the ocean, because Europe seemed cool and better for hanging out before they came back to then breed, it would have been a much shorter journey. And it's like they've just kind of kept on doing the same thing whilst the earth has completely changed around them, but obviously at a very slow pace.
1: No wonder they're dying out.
0: But is yeah. that because of global warming or because
2: well the journey's actually, getting longer and longer. Which, which is, I suppose
0: is to do with global warming. It's not
2: because of the journey, actually. I don't think that's really affecting them. Global warming was having an impact because the Gulf Streams changing was maybe flinging some of the larvae like into the wrong pathways and stuff. So they weren't getting to the right location. And also the building of dams and all these rivers and things changing is actually, that's why they've had to like bring in the ramps for them. But I think I read something also that's saying there was an advantage to global warming with eels because the numbers are going back up again.
0: Um, well thank god there's got to be something good about <laughs> it. that's the silver lining <laughs> um, but yeah that's the European eels lifespan and well it's, that was absolutely fascinating it really was it's may I ask have you ever um, encountered an eel in nature yes I once saw an eel washed up on the beach with its mouth open and a fish it tried to eat a fish that was too big for it and it had choked on the fish and they both got washed up dead on the shore but it was quite amazing what a way to go what a way to go yeah That sounds quite like how I would die.
1: (laughs) Elvis dying on the loo, eating a hamburger. Yeah. Elvis Presley.
0: You can't do it twice. That was mine. You've got 16 more to go. E
1: is for etymology. Ooh. The definition (laughs) of etymology. It's the study of the origin of words and the way in which their meanings have changed throughout history. Not to be confused, of course, with the meaning of a word, which I think in this segment I will do several times because I was was running dry on the the etymology research, so I sort of went into meanings a bit. But, you know, we'll have fun. We're having fun. Etymological theory recognises a limited number of basic mechanisms in the evolution of words. So there's language change, I guess, over the course of time. Borrowing words, adoption of foreign words, so for example, croissant or so what was that? Croissant <laughs> So yeah, adoption is a loan word from another language. Uh word formation so when you compound two words together, um and another one is portmanteau's which is two words blended together to make a new one. So smoke and fog, smog. right Right. um more more yeah yeah oh i liked this one this one i'd never thought about but electrocute electricity and execute
0: (gasps) oh my word isn't
1: that groundbreaking can you think of one gel oh put me on the spot why don't you bullying you (laughs) you can you can definitely think of one what do you have to eat between your first meal breaking of the, the day. fast like, yeah.
0: <laughs> brunch yeah that is break- brunch but that is what bre- oh
1: no hang on yeah this isn't this isn't meanings this is uh, <laughs> sorry the history of the words and how they have evolved no but brunch
0: is less exciting than electrocute
1: set. agreed agreed most of them are not very exciting because they, they're like brunch and brangelina one other I didn't
0: <laughs> <laughs> hang on a minute
1: <laughs> well, brangelina is just a nominal
0: portmanteau isn't it But it's not, I mean, I suppose so, but I don't know if that one will go down in history in the same way that like smog has now become part of the English language. I reckon Brangelina will go fairly far down in history.
2: Yeah, long enough.
1: (laughs) I mean, definitely for the length of our lifetimes.
2: No, Brangelina. Yeah, Yeah. because we'll still be alive and referring to them thus. Yeah, I suppose so, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. When I am 90, (laughs) I will not be shutting up about Brangelina. I'll tell you now. Then you've also got Onomatopoeia. Mm. developing words so things like click or grunt I never thought of grunt as an onomatopoeia but it was given as an example yeah that's a rubbish one I'm more like smash
2: yeah or poo but no poo's
1: not an onomatopoeia
2: (laughs) plop 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 is yeah yeah.
1: (laughs) really what I want to talk about is several words that I came across with some fascinating etymologies number one avocado does anyone know the etymology of this word?
0: I don't Ooh. think I do. No. Do you want to have
1: a guess? What do you think it could come from? If you had to guess, think about the word. Is it split into sections? No, nah, that was a trick question. You won't guess it. <laughs> <laughs> but it comes from an Aztec word, which is our cuddle, which is, I guess, very similar. Our, our cuddle? I don't know how to... I don't speak Aztec, but... um, Well, then get out. (laughs) I'm going to say our cattle. Okay. Which sounds a bit like our cattle, but don't be misled. That's got nothing to do with it. Our cattle (laughs) is the Aztec word for testicle. Oh, Oh. now we're cooking with gas. (laughs) (laughs) Which kind of makes sense because they're drooping... Soft fruits, easily bruised,
0: a hideous in a <laughs> leathery skin, <laughs> green inside, shrivelled, and ruining the planet. <laughs> Am I right, ladies? Disgusting
1: when gone over, but lovely when ripe. <laughs> <laughs> but it does somewhat change the uh, the feeling around avocado on toast.
0: Mm. Doesn't it? Testy on toast.
1: And smashed Avo. Oof. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've peaked too soon. Actually, no, I like the next one. Jeans. So while well, jeans are. With a G or with time? a J? With a J. Uh, jeans, yeah, like trousers. While they're thought of as American because of Levi's Strauss, the first mass producer of jeans as we know them today. They get their name from the fact that the the fabric used for them was originally produced in Genoa in Italy and in Nîmes in France, and the French word for Genoa is "gen," so an anglicisation of that is thought to be jeans, gen, Jeanne <laughs> turned to jeans, and then uh, the slightly better fabric, which is what we use for jeans now. Came from Nîmes in France. De Nîmes means from Nîmes. Oh. Denim. Of and yes. And by the way, they're not American because workers in northern Italy are thought to have been wearing jeans since the 17th century. Ooh. Next one phony, meaning fraudulent or not genuine. Back in the day, I don't know which day it is, it just said back in the day. <laughs> back in the day, pirates used to sell fawny, which was British slang for fake gold rings. Ah, that's good. Oh, I like that. So you get phony because if you say it in a pirate's accent, it's somewhat closer to phony. How would a pirate say phony? Forney. Oh, no, it's F. <laughs> <laughs> There's no R in there. F A W N E Y. Forney. That's hard. Can a pirate pronounce that? I think a pirate could attempt to pronounce anything. Do they have to have an R in all their words, though? That's true. Fourny. Frony. Fourny. Oh, this one's interesting. Nightmare. You might know this, Marika. I feel you are a knower when it comes to nightmares. Yeah. Is
2: that because I did dreams last week? Oh, that's it. I forgot about that.
1: <laughs> is it something to do with the horse? No. This is what's interesting. So, so you'd think, obviously, we know what night means. I think it comes from, well, this... Etymology is very complicated because you get back, there's a Latin version, then there's like a Germanic version, and then there's a Proto Indo European version, and they just get the words get smaller and smaller and smaller. And the meaning is often the same as it is today. But so I'm not going to go into the origins of the word knight. But mare, you'd think, would be relating to a horse. In fact, a mare is a malicious entity in Germanic and Slavic folklore that rides on people's chests while they sleep bringing them nightmares oh my god which is if you've had sleep paralysis or heard of it you know people talk about the hag so when you have sleep paralysis <laughs> Don't and you talk about like that. <laughs> you wake up and you can't move completely paralyzed and i think it's a state of half waking half sleeping and it's a common phenomenon that people describe a hag sitting on their chest yeah. oh that's so and scary so i guess it's this same naughty woman that she's where does she have to be a woman it is a woman it's like a witchy woman the mare is also thought to have ridden on horses people believed that when horses were like glistening with sweat after sleep it's because the mare had been riding on them <gasps> similar to how humans can wake up from dreams covered in sweat wow basically watch out for that mare yeah, terrifying. Yeah, I don't want her anywhere near me. Have you guys ever had any kind of goblin encounter? In like, dreams or in real in life? In your...
2: Like, have you had sleep paralysis or... or no. Uh, no. I've been around whilst it's happening, but not to me. I'm the man. <laughs> <laughs> Galloping around. Okay, <laughs> you got me. Did I you... did ride here.
0: <laughs> On Gina's chest. <laughs>
2: yeah. So have sweaty.
0: Have you
1: watched...
2: Who have you watched? Oh, no, you don't have to say who you've watched. Have you watched someone have sleep paralysis? No, I was just in bed whilst they were having that. But I, well, I actually wasn't awake. But it's quite a spooky story whereby they... was more like, I don't know, sleep paralysis rather than sort of floating around outside your body but not really realising. And then just like going to the bathroom and seeing something really creepy in their housemate's room where the housemate was sitting upright and sort of, like, gabbling away through the night.
0: Oh, God.
2: And then, um, and looked, like, crazed. So then was really freaked out and was thinking, oh, God, I need to get back to my room. And then realised whilst they were speeding back to their room that they weren't on their feet. So it was like they were just floating. And then got back and then woke up and then woke me up. So that was a nightmare. So that, well, you say that, but then the next day her and her housemate were chatting and... Her housemate was like, "I'm sleeping so badly at the moment. I keep having all these weird dreams that I'm possessed by a demon." Oh, absolutely terrifying! So then they went and like smudged the house and everything, and she did some kind of, and now it stopped happening. But like, it's it's a very creepy story, and it definitely, obviously, it's all true, like from what their mouths. But if if that was what was happening, then that would be some. It's not necessarily, it's paralysis in the sense that the physical self would have been stuck back in the bed and the i suppose spiritual self will have been wandering around the corridors so that's in that way yes but not that thing of being like oh, i can't move and i'm sort of semi-stuck
0: i guess it's like a level deeper mm. oh god but the idea of being in a house with someone who's possessed by some kind of demon is so scary because it could transfer at any time right that's what would freaked me out I'd be like i'm next or I'm the demon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, it's it's yeah. Creepy. Imagine that you realise when
2: someone started like burning some stage, and then you're like, "Oh God, it smells awful." I'm reacting to it, and then you realise that you were the demon. Exactly. And you just want to hang out.
1: <laughs> what did I see in the past twenty four hours that was a possessed person? <laughs> this is creeping me out.
2: Don't tell them. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh I've scared myself I am genuinely God, scared, scared.
1: Uh, coffee then. oh this is a good one clue as in <laughs> I was like you haven't asked the question yet <laughs> clue as in a clue I don't know how to define yeah, it a hint
0: sorry oh yeah nice <laughs> a hint
1: it comes from Greek oh. mythology when the mythical king Theseus trapped in the labyrinth with the minotaur famously terrifying Used a ball of yarn to track his path so he could mm-hmm. get out if he got lost. And the word for a ball of yarn is a clue C L E W. Oh, that's great. I that's like that fantastic. one. And now we use it as a clue. So, and last one of my favorites is shampoo. It's a Hindi word meaning to massage. It comes from the Sanskrit root word, which is chapati. As in like the breads that we eat, chapati, and it means kneading or pressing. So shampooing your hair is kneading and pressing, massaging your head, but in the same way that chapati is a sort of kneaded, flattened bread. Fabulous. Well, there you go. I liked that one. Mm. Now, I've taken the liberty of etymologizing your names. Oh, my, my. I haven't got very far. (laughs) Jelly... Did you know that your first name comes from gelu in Latin, which
0: means frost? Oh, that does make sense. I'm a frosty little lady. So, first name frost, as in jelly or Angelica. Yeah, I didn't. I,
1: did, I forgot about Angelica. People always do. Is it a flower? Yeah. Is it what kind of flower is it? Lovely one. <laughs> <laughs> I go with gelu. Yeah, ge- anyway. Gelu. 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 And uh, obviously. Denniston, it appears is just a habitational name from uh, Renfrewshire in Scotland. Yeah, yeah, I knew it was Scottish, but Interesting From Danzielstoon. That was the original name, so Frost Dansielstoon. And then this this is, you know, more the meanings of names, I guess. It's not etymology. Marika, yeah. Star of the Sea. What? Oh. Apparently that's what Marika means. I mean From it's a derivation where? of a derivative of, of Maria. Yeah. But
0: apparently Marika's called Maria.
1: <laughs> Sorry. I know I did think about that.
0: You'd be so different. Yeah. Maria. Mm-mm. Maria's quite a cool name. I do like the name Maria. Yeah, but put a K in it. Korea.
1: <laughs> Korea's counsellor. <laughs> um so <laughs> Uh, Maria, Marika, Star of the Sea, Hackman, Hacker of Wood. So, you know, that's your name. Oh, you got such
0: a good one, Star what? of the Sea and Hacker of Wood. Yeah, but you got Frost. <laughs> that's quite good. Cool. Yeah, that's true. Frosty yeah. Scott. All right then, ladies, shall we proceed? Absolutely. Please. Well, I've chosen to do. E for earthworms because I actually feel like and this was demonstrated to me by when I told my darling housemate what I was doing for today Mm. and I said earthworms and she went ooh horrible and I feel like they've got quite a bad rep yeah they do which I don't think is fair and as you're about to find out perhaps we wouldn't be here without the lowly earthworm (laughs) so off we go (laughs) Now, what is an earthworm? You ask. I hear you cry. <laughs> it's a terrestrial invertebrate, which means no spine Exactly. Bones. no bones, baby. Um, <laughs> I imagine you're both familiar with. <laughs> you can say I imagine you're both invertebrates. <laughs> you two are absolutely invertebrate. You're just big long tubes, Um with a certain someone called Mr. Charles Darwin. Most famously known for his works, (laughs) *The (laughs) Origin of Species* (laughs) and *The Descent of Man*. But old Jazza actually spent a huge amount of time researching earthworms—forty years, in fact—and it was the last ever book he wrote, called *The Formation of Vegetable Mould Through the Actions of Worms*, in Mm. 1881. And he basically discovered that they've played a huge part in the evolution of the Earth as in soil and making things they're like the tiller before the tiller if that makes sense Mm. and he actually said it may be doubted if there are any other animals which have played such an important part in the history of the world as these lonely organized creatures and he was already at this time being laughed out of the bloody room for the concept of old evolution (laughs) exactly (laughs) and so this everyone was just like you bloody what a worm are you kidding me and then it went on to be a bestseller there you go so with a title like that exactly snappy and effective (laughs) absolutely (laughs) um Um, and this i thought was quite sweet with the help of his children he would go out while the ground was still cool and moist and observe and record the habitats of the earthworms i don't think for 40 years he would do that but he just studied them right and And he were he wormed (laughs) (laughs) We <laughs> learned that worms literally move the earth in the process of their meanderings and their passage through the earth aerates the soil and the natural chemistry of their guts renders soil and plant matter into fertile pellets. As a byproduct of their movements, worms deposit new soil atop the surface, causing whatever was on top to slowly submerge. So the whole monuments may be buried over a period of decades, which I thought was quite cool. That's mm. very cool. All because of a worm. And now, some more things about worms. (laughs) Um, First and foremost, there are thousands, much like eels, of different species of earthworm around the world. Not just the big red guys that you find in the garden. Although those are the most common. The big red? Pinky Pinky red. Pinky brown. (laughs) Oh. Don't want to talk about that. You're pinky brown. (laughs) Um, The most common is the tiger worm that we see... Sifting through the leaves and the mulch in our... Tiger worm? Yeah, it's the most common. Well, the earth... the uh, So that's a descendant of... The, the earthworms is like the umbrella term, and then you have lots in the family. Yeah. There are 26 different species of earthworm that live in Britain. Hmm. And the common earthworm can tunnel as deep as three metres below the surface, so they might be digging your groves. The largest earthworm ever recorded in the UK. 40 centimetres long. Ugh. And Mm. it's so long. Yeah, it's so long. Yum yum. It is so long. It was found in a ruler in a vegetable patch. Oh my god! Yeah, big. But they don't freak me out at all. Do they? they, You don't like them? No. You could have told me that before I chose it for my e.
2: (laughs) No, I think they're interesting, and I very much appreciate what they do for us. Yeah. You literally
1: told me I look like a worm. No, that's when you wear sunglasses. You look
2: like the worm from James and the Giant Peach. All right. (laughs) <laughs> very specific, it's a very specific worm.
0: But maybe you're tilling the earth. But that uh, is what my name means, tiller of the soil. Oh my God, yeah, of course. Gina Worm Miller. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, while they are just essentially one long digestive system, they are, as Darwin found out, wonderfully, remarkably complex. And what he did to prove this was, while he discovered that they don't actually have ears, they can still hear, which he probably might have guessed but he did a little experiment where he popped them atop his piano in a pot of soil and watched as they went back into the soil when he played a note because they it, they were hearing the sound via vibration rather than through their ears because they don't have any mm-hmm. and they don't have lungs they just breathe through their skin what cool so very what did cool. they go
1: underneath the soil because they didn't like the music no because they heard the vibration.
2: very big the dawn of the worm <laughs> <laughs> Guys, we've got to get under here. I cannot stand this
0: noise. <laughs> um, but because they use vibrations to identify when moles are around, ah. which is their main predator, and birds once they get to the top. But So they they associate any kind, which is maybe quite dumb, but they associate any kind of vibration with moles coming, so they get back down as far as they can. So that's how they survive, basically, by identifying different sounds. Can I ask a quick question in relation to sort? You might come to it later. So. You can. I might not be able to answer it, but... Why do they all come up to the surface when it rains? Oh, Marika. I was <laughs> hoping you'd ask me that. <laughs> Again, to do with moles. So what they they, they misidentify the sound of the rain yeah. as the vibrations of the moles coming to get them through. People used to think it was to, because they were scared of drowning, so they'd get to the top. Right. But actually it's more it's to do with vibration and sound and fear of predators, so they all race to the top but there's actually no threat there and then they all just get picked off by birds. Oh, <laughs> so it's quite tragic, really. That's not a very good evolutionary thing. Uh, no, no, that's true. Thing. But I mean, they've been around for fucking ages. They're older than dinosaurs. That's cool. Wow. So that's kind of the the overview yeah. of the worm. And now I'm just going to tell you some facts. So Darwin also suspected most of this stuff that we know about worms comes from Darwin. Like bloody everything, am I right? Classic Darwin. I know. Yeah. He also suspected they had some kind of basic intelligence after figuring out that they could like assess whether or not a predator was near, but not very well, as it turns out. But after watching them choose leaves by their shape, he set up an experiment with tiny triangles of paper and, as predicted, the earthworms were tugging the paper triangles from their apexes because those were the ends most likely to fit into their burrows, which is quite cool. They're not just dum-dums, like they do know things. What are they doing with those leaves, though, in their burrows? Well, that, I can't tell you. It's I secret. N- maybe building little things underground. <laughs> More like whittling. Settlement, yeah. <laughs> Origami. Maybe they use them to slide. Or send letters to each other. I can't tell if it's a mole, but write letters, sure. <laughs> um, and also, if they're threatened, they all herd together underground, communicating by touch and crawling over each other. So that's quite cool. They can push ten times their own body weight which is the equivalent of a human pushing a large polar bear out of his or her way. That's amazing. <laughs> That's incredible. And a baby earthworm can push 500 times its own weight. <laughs> another another comparison for you here. <laughs> the same as a person casually shoving a humpback whale to one side. <laughs> now, I must credit uh, Sally Coulthard here. Coulthard? Coulthard? Because this is where I'm getting quite a lot of my worm facts from now. Okay. And the title of the article that I'm reading is actually... Strong, smart, and sexy in spades. It's time to reappraise our most undervalued invertebrate. I feel like that'll be written about me one day. <laughs> <laughs> the Marie Kackman story. That's the title of your own biography. Yeah, exactly. Um, what else do you want to know, guys? Oh, maybe why they're slimy? <laughs> <laughs> They're slimy, obviously, because it helps them plop through the soil. They don't plop. No, they push. They, they hump back well across. They hump they their way through the soil. <laughs> and it also helps them to breathe, actually, the slime, because Ooh. they diffuse oxygen and carbon dioxide through their skin. Bo- and for this to happen, the surface has to be moist.
1: Sorry, I was just thinking of slugs. <clears throat> I was wondering if it's the same reason for sliminess.
0: I tried to pick one up the other day, and it was almost glued to the floor. They are so Ugh. slimy. Yeah. Well, is this, the foot has a suction, doesn't it, a bit? Or is it just a slime? Yeah, I think they do
1: have suckers. They do, because it's so flat underneath. So it's like a, a shower soap dish that you can squidge onto the wall.
0: Yeah. Now, you're going to both like this bit. Let me tell you about mating. <laughs> um, <laughs> because. What, earthworms or? Earthworms. Yeah. Or oh, man meat. man Gossip. Me. Believe it or not, earthworm reproduction is both lengthy and rather sweet. The courtship ritual of the common earthworm involves a lot of actually getting to know each other, which Aww. is quite nice, isn't it? Yeah. Unlike the youth of today. <laughs> um, they poke their little heads out, out of their yeah. own burrow, and try and put their head into a neighbouring burrow. And the amount of time an earthworm visits a potential mate's burrow varies before they do the deed. Sometimes it could be once or twice, sometimes more than a dozen. The courted earthworm then comes to the other burrow and they both go back and forth to each other's houses, basically, and, like, hang out. And then when they're ready to mate, the two earthworms lie next to each other, facing in opposite directions, which I love, <laughs> head to tail, glued together in a tight embrace, and then they have sex for as long as they want, lasting anywhere from one to three hours. Wow. Yeah. And they've got something called a clitella, <laughs> which is, you know... You, Just like a the- miniature... Clitoris. Clitoris. Tiny clit. Do yeah. they? Well, it's that, you know, on a worm where you have their tail and then you have like the bulbous, the joint, the like red blob at the top. Oh. That's its glitella.
1: what's well, to be honest, <laughs> that's massive then
0: in relation to the worm. No, but I. Yeah, don't... can we have the human equivalent?
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's like bigger than our head.
0: <laughs> yeah, adult. Oh, no, sorry, it's not the bit on their head, it's the bit in the middle. You can identify adult breeding worms by their distinctive ring-shaped band called called a clitella. Oh, yes, I'm familiar with that. Um, and they mate by lining up their heads and attaching themselves at the clitella. A cocoon is then formed at the clitella band and they start exchanging sperms. Lifespan, two years, but they can live up to as long as eight years. They're cold-blooded and have five hearts. Is that why you can chop them off and they keep going? Well, that's that's actually... Sort of a myth. You have to chop them relative to their clitella. <laughs> <laughs> so the clitella survives. You're fine.
1: But, but presumably, unless you cut it on the clitella, the clitella survives because one half will have it.
0: Yeah, If you well, if you cut a worm in half, depending on where the cut is, it can regenerate the lost segments. And they have five hearts located close to the head and before the clitella. So if you cut a worm... Behind the clitella, then it can regenerate its tail. But if you get a heart or the head, yeah. donezo. Right. And I imagine it's not a particularly pleasant experience for them. I the like largest worms. worm in the world is 9.8 feet long. More. <laughs> oh, yeah. And they digest half of their body weight on average each day. So to process waste, food waste from a family of four each day, you would need 2,000 worms. And there you go. Wow. That's very cool. They're very cool. Yeah, I do I do really like them. I don't want them like a, in my space all the time, but they don't fuss me at all. Thanks for listening to another episode of AS4
2: with Marika, Gina, and Jelly. Next week, you can hear us freaking out about Friday the 13th, fannying around with fads and farting about with fragrance. And if you really like us, you can follow us
0: at AS4 podcast on Instagram.